Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer. Our gracious Father, we are so thankful for you and the way you run your kingdom and your universe with truth, love, liberty. We ask that you enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, help us to be effective witnesses for you in this world at this time. We pray that uh, we will have discernment as we see the the chaos happening in the world, that we can uh, not get caught up in the distractions, but keep our eyes fixed on Christ and be able to carry forward the final message that is to lighten the world so that we can see you coming soon. Be with us as our study today that we will honor you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements. Uh, first, I want to say hi to our new friends up at the Sligo by the Sea. Uh, last week, I was there and I uh, had a, a wonderful time uh, meeting with people and and uh, Troy, Jerry, Ann, and Byron and Janice, uh, and then others. I uh, really enjoyed the time we got to spend together. And some some people were there that had never really heard of us before, and they asked some really really wonderful questions. We had a great Q and A time, and we're able to just dialogue and go back and forth. And so. Welcome and thank you to our friends there. We're doing lesson 10 today in the crucible with Christ, meekness in the crucible. And the memory verse is, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Of course, that comes from the Beatitudes, um, Matthew 5. When you hear that, what does it mean? We are called to be meek. What is meekness? Is meekness the same as weakness? No. What's the difference between meekness and weakness? Opposites. They're opposites. Oh, I like you're exactly right. I think the best example of the difference between meekness and weakness is Jesus in his trial before Pilate. Jesus was meek, but stood firm for his principles. Pilate was had all the power of Rome behind him and the armies of Rome. But he was weak in character and gave in to fear and intimidation and, and, and mobs uh, shouting. He was fearful for his reputation and his position. And thus Jesus, meek and strong. Pilate, weak and wrong. <laughs> That's what we saw there. And in order to actually have meekness, to be meek, what's necessary? What is the source of strength that allows someone to be meek and strong? What is it? Character of love. Oh, brilliant. Self-control. Character of love. Self-control. What is the cause of weakness? Even when one sits in a position of power with earthly might, Behind you, selfishness. selfishness, he said. Yes, meekness is a trait of character that stems from the outworking of God's love operating in the heart. Weakness is a trait of character that stems from fear and selfishness. They have to use different methods. Right. That aren't God's design in order to be strong. In order to feel strong. Yes, because fear and selfishness makes us survival-driven, fear something happened, and so we want to use external power over other people to make ourselves feel safer. Those who have been reborn in Christ have surrendered their safety and their future and their outcome to God, and they trust Him, lest they don't have to fight for their own survival. As soon as Adam sinned, he ran and hid because he was afraid. Fear that incites selfishness is part of the infection of sin. But the Bible says there is no fear in love. 
Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Get your mind around that. Get your mind around where we are in history. The, 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 those who translated when Jesus comes right into heaven are described in Revelation 12, verse 11 as, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they're not driven by fear and the need to survive. They're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When they were threatened with the fiery furnace, they didn't love their life so much that they would kneel to the idol. They loved God and what he stood for, and because they trusted him with their lives, he was able to use them as powerful witnesses to reach a pagan king. If they loved themselves more, they would have compromised, and God could not reach the king through their faithfulness. The final generation before Christ comes will have that kind of love and trust in God. Like Daniel in the lion's den. He knew that he was being He knew the threats, and he didn't compromise his relation with God in order to avoid. He didn't also go out and poke his finger in the eyes of people to draw attention to himself. He just continued his healthy and normal routines. Love focuses our concern on others. Fear focuses our concern on self. Love is willing to sacrifice self for others, whereas fear sacrifices integrity, principles, honor, truth, and others to protect self. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The meek love God and others and are not afraid to stand for God's truth, and the weak are driven by fear and will compromise truth to protect themselves. Thus, meekness is found, the strength to be meek and strong is found in the combination of truth and love operating in your heart from a trust relationship with our trustworthy God. That's where it comes from. We experience when we have a relationship with our trustworthy God, we experience transformational power of God's love as we come into an intimate knowledge of him. Truth and love combined is the power that changes hearts and minds from fearful weakness to cheerful meekness. The meek have been reborn into the kingdom of love. So the weak remain fearful and selfish and seek to make themselves feel safe by trying to control others. Have you seen that in society? These weak people, I will, these weak people, now I'm going to, Quote Romans chapter 1, 29. This, these weak people are, quote, quote, are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Romans 1, 29 through 31. And we see these weak people far too Often, people that practice methods like this far too often in positions of leadership and power. Earthly power. Whether that power is in the government, leadership, business, or the church. And why is it we find these weak people in positions of power far too often? Why? What are the weak people motivated by what's their motivation 
fear and selfishness and to compensate so they don't feel afraid and insecure, what do they need to make themselves feel safe? Power. So they strive for earthly power so that they can feel safe or corporate power or financial power or church authority power. Jesus said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, if you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. John 15, 18 and 19. Satan is the father of the weak, the father of the fearful and the selfish. And listen to what the Bible says about Satan and his method of rulership and governing. This is Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star? And I'm going to want you to notice there will be six movements or actions of Satan. I'll highlight them again in a moment. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of the God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of the Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you were brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Six movements up, crashing down to eternal ruin. Satan seeks in his method. Six times is told you is to rise over others and rule over. Using the masses as resources to empower him. That's Satan's way. All the kingdoms of the world run that way. Elites in power, exploiting masses to keep them in power. And taking actions to limit how many of the masses can actually gain power because the power that anybody else gains takes power in their mind away from them and threatens them. But notice Jesus' method of governing. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And notice there'll be seven movements here. Jesus makes seven movements. Six, six, six. (laughs) Satan moved six times. Jesus moved seven Holy, holy, okay? Jesus Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The glory of God the Father. Jesus sacrificed, notice the different method of governing here. Equality with God, infinite power, does not something to be grasped or held on to. He surrenders all the way down, not just becoming all the way down to the cross for the purpose of uplifting the masses. Get your mind around the two methodologies. One methodology, we use power to rise over, to exploit, to make sure that we stay in power. The other methodology is the more we have, the more we seek to help lift up the others. 
Satan ends up in ruin, dying in the grave, annihilated. That's what happens because it's contrary to the very principles that life is based upon. Jesus, sacrificing all in love, restores the principles of life into the humanity he assumed, and he rises again and is elevated to the highest heights. Jesus lived out God's law, the design protocols of love as a human, destroying the principles of fear and selfishness that he partook of, took our nature through his mother. And thus, even though he's tempted in every way just like we are, he destroyed that infection and restored God's perfection into the species human. Notice by what Christ accomplished, Hebrews 2.14, he destroyed him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. 2 Timothy 1.10, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. 1 John 3.8, he destroyed the devil's work. And the devil's work, and he's still working. Let me tell you, he's still working. Uh, We don't have time for me to go off on a side issue here because I really could, but he's working, and his work is to efface or destroy the image of God in man and to make Satan's image where God's should be. And he's working like he's always worked through history. All the stuff you read about in the Bible, he was working, false worship and all that kind of stuff. But he's working today in new ways with genetic modifications, cybernetic enhancements, and and all types of things along this way to destroy and efface the image of God and to cut us off from the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to go into that right now, though. The meek are those who have had God's law written in their hearts. So they live... And love like Jesus. They seek to bless others. They understand that love grows only in freedom. Let that settle. Love grows only, it's a law, the law of liberty. You cannot get love by putting a knife to someone's throat and and threatening to kill them if they don't love you. You cannot get it. It will always destroy love and incite rebellion, and the person will want to get far away from you if you were serious and not just joking. Pardon? If you love it, set it free. Yeah, this is a, this is reality. God cannot get your love, your faith, your trust, your loyalty, your friendship by threatening to kill you or torture you if you don't give it to Him. He can't get it. It would actually result in the opposite. And much of the religions of the world, including Christianity, teach this perversion. And where does it stem from? Why? Why do good Christians teach that God, in order to be just, must use power to punish rule breakers, sinners? Why? Why do they teach it? What's the root? Correct. They have accepted the lie that God's law works like human law. If God's law works like human law, made up rules, then in fact God has to use power to enforce his law because there would be no accountability if he didn't. That's why we are called to call people back to worship the creator, him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst, because the creator builds reality, and his laws are the laws upon which reality operate. And deviating from those laws, as the scripture says, result or destroy the sinner. The wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature, from that nature, reap destruction. We cut ourselves off from the source of life and health. And the only outcome is annihilation and death. 
That's what happens when we break God's design laws, like tying a plastic bag over your head and breaking the law of respiration. You can't live doing that. The meek have God's law of love restored within them. But the weak are jealous of others. They fear not having what others have. They fear others gaining more skills or abilities or fame or fortune and taking their power from them so they seek to control others. God's method of governing philosophically is represented as autonomy. Those with abilities use their abilities to create atmospheres so others can exercise their God-given capacities to develop to the highest level that they're capable of developing by applying themselves. This is the principle of the U.S. Constitution. We see certain, we have certain inalienable rights given to our, by our creator. Life, liberty, and the, <laughs> the government insured right to happiness. <laughs> That's what it says. The pursuit, you, and so the, the idea here is, is creating atmospheres where each person has the ability to apply themselves for the development of themselves, and we want to celebrate as people, though. This is the historic American dream where people could come and they were not relegated to some caste or to some role or serfdom, what was given to them, because they, they're, they're, I don't know if you know where a lot of surnames come from. Many surnames come from the Middle Ages and Dark Ages of the occupation. So somebody with the last name Thatcher, they thatched roofs. And if you were born to a Thatcher, guess what you did when you grew up? You thatched roofs. And if your last name was Cobbler or Cobb, you, you, you fixed shoes or made shoes. And if you were born in that family, guess what you did? And there was no opportunity for advancement or, 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 or development. The, the elites needed people in these roles to keep their society functioning, and you were born to serve the elites. It was a divine right. They had a divine right to demand your service. And as long as you served, they would give you a little cottage to live in and a little bit of food and a, just a little bit of an income to have some clothes because the serfs need to work understand that this is Satan's methodology of governing. The U.S. Constitution was written by people who had a vision of God's principles and wanted to create a society in which individuals could develop themselves to the full. And, and, this, and this vision came out of the Protestant Reformation when the Bible got put in the hands of the people. This is where it came from. And the abolitionist movement came after the Bible was translated in the hands of the people. These principles are at war. And ever since the Constitution was enacted and these principles came and, and, and a nation arose initially with lamb-like principles, but eventually that nation speaks like a dragon because Satan's kingdoms are imperial and they work on imposed law. And the principles of the Constitution are absolutely hanging by a thread in this country. And the, and the elites are working overtime to create a surf class. To take liberty. There's multiple ways to take liberty. You can take it in the, in the overt physical coercive way of physically enslaving people like happening in, nation, in the history of slavery. You can do it that way. Or in POWs whose freedoms are taken and they're locked away. Or we do it with criminals and put them in. You can do it physically. But there's other ways to take freedom. You can take freedom by indebting people with so much debt that they're not free. 
or reducing their economic income so they are struggling to just put food on the table and pay the electric and water bill. And have you noticed over the last two years, economic freedoms of the mass of Americans are being restricted and taken? This is not an accident. Understand, there are people in power who want to make a functional surf class of the American population where you will be completely dependent either on the government or some big corporation. And you will comply with what they say or you will lose your job. And, and, if, and if you lose your job, you lose your house. You lose your house, you lose your food. Have you felt it? Have you felt the pressure? This is part of what the Bible prophesied is going to happen. And then we will not reform the governments to make them godly. They're all part of Satan's kingdom. Understand that. This isn't a political conversation. This is a spiritual conversation. So you can understand how God's kingdom works differently. Jesus said the kingdom of God is found in Jerusalem. Well, he didn't say that. Where do you say the kingdom of God is found? Within you. Within you. Because the kingdom of God operates on love, the law of love, the law of truth, the law of liberty. You cannot establish a kingdom like that through legislation and external enforcement. It's only established through the way the Spirit works, not by might nor by power, but by the spirits, but by my spirit, says the Lord, spirit of truth and love, transforming hearts. Jesus taught his disciples to be meek, to respect the choices of those who they sought to share the gospel with. If people didn't want to listen, the disciples were to take no personal offense, shake the dust off their feet, move on to those who would. Don't become angry. Don't seek retaliation. Instead, they were to recognize that such people Injure themselves by rejecting the truth. Simply move on. Don't let the, don't carry with you the dirt of resentment and bitterness and anger. Don't carry it with you. The weak though, if not in positions that enable them to exert control over others, because if they're in positions and you disagree with them, they will seek to silence you. They will seek to censor you. They will seek to deplatform you. They will seek to block your articles from publication. They will seek to... Look, look what they did to Jesus. Constantly seeking to marginalize and, and diminish him and, uh, and label him as, a, as a working for Beelzebub and being demon-possessed to, to reduce his, his reputation. Why? Because they didn't like his positions and they didn't want to leave him free because his positions were truth, and truth always overthrows lies. So people in weakness, in positions of falsehood, will use whatever power they have to silence voices of truth. If they are weak, though, and they don't have power, then what they do is they find somebody who's also weak in power, and they, be, and they begin to serve them, and they surrender to them, and they follow them, and they come, they come their little pawns and plebes. Or they become a behind-the-scenes conniver, plotter, and manipulator of others like Judas who sought to manipulate Jesus through his behind-the-scenes plotting and betrayal. The meek stand firm in the face of opposition. They don't compromise truth or God's principles to garner favor. The weak 
present what they believe others want to hear in order to be accepted. Seeking to manage the people around them rather than advancing the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Sunday's lesson calls our attention to Moses, who is called the meekest man in the world, and points out that Moses was called to endure endless ways of gossip and criticism. Is gossip a serious or minor problem? <laughs> How did Lucifer in heaven advance his rebellion against God? What was his primary weapon, if you could label it? Gossip. Wasn't it gossip? That's what it was. Spreading false reports behind the scenes, person to person, in ways that often probably sounded he was only concerned for the welfare of everyone and trying to make things better. What do we do when people gossip and criticize about us? Gossip about you, criticize you, behind the scenes. You get reports. I get, you may be surprised to know. <laughs> I guess you're not surprised. There is lots of gossip and criticism that circles around about me. I get reports all the time from people that are spreading reports about me. What's our responsibility when that happens? How did God handle things when Lucifer gossiped in heaven? How did Jesus handle gossip and misinformation about him when he was on earth? Remember, our responsibility is in how we govern self not how others govern themselves. We are responsible, not for what others say about us, but for how we respond to what others say about us. Do we respond by living out the principles of God, truth, love, and freedom? It's certainly biblical if a person is misrepresenting you and you have reason to believe that they are of honest heart and misinformed and they have a character that desires truth. In that setting, it's, it's certainly biblical to go to them, have a conversation, to set the record right, even bringing one or two witnesses with you. The Bible talks about that. However, if the person in your judgment is closed to truth, is a, is a, is a motivated enemy like this, the leadership of the Sanhedrin, against Jesus, closed to correction, then we are not to cast our pearls before swine, unless they turn and run us. Notice what Jesus said. It's not, don't cast your criticisms before swine. Don't cast your pearls, your pearls of truth, before swine. In other words, if you have clarifying conversations to set the record straight with people that you are, are convinced are your enemies and are not interested in truth, those conversations become traps for you where they will take your words and twist them to say something you didn't say exactly like the Sanhedrin leadership did when Christ finally answered one of their questions. And so we're not to have conversations with everyone. You're to use your judgment. Eventually, he stopped speaking to Pilate, if you remember, once he realized Pilate was not interested in truth anymore. One of Satan's strategies is to have people gossip and then divert our attention away from the gospel truth, the truth about God, the message he's given us to share, in, and, and get into the mud with the gossips and start fighting with them. That's a, that's, a trick. that's a trick. That doesn't mean there isn't a place to actually speak the truth on the question. If the question, somebody says, oh, you've been stealing money. Yes, there's a place to set that record. Say, nope, here, get an accountant, look at the accounts. No money's been stolen. There's a place for that. 
if, especially if it's public, to have a public clearing of the record, to clear the minds of the confused. God did that in heaven when Lucifer was accusing God had a counsel, and he set the record straight, okay? But the person who's accusing isn't interested in that truth at all. You can see this working out in society. I'm not going to point to certain individuals in our society where this is happening right now, but you can see this happening in our society right now. Understand, eventually the truth wins out. This is the great controversy in how it rolls. The truth is being revealed, the truth about God revealed in Jesus and at the cross, and there are two antagonistic principles. They stood face to face at the cross. God's truth and self-sacrificial love revealed in Jesus, Satan's method of power over and coercive force, kill or be killed. They met at the cross. Self-sacrificial love won at the cross. Truth won over lies at the cross. God is not the kind of person Satan has alleged. I've consistently and repeatedly pointed out for years now in this class the, con- the contrast between these two systems of governing, these two methods, these two laws. And, and I do it from Scripture. I also do it uh, how they're playing out in the world around us in real-life events. Yet I repeatedly get emails from people telling me to stop being political. Stop taking sides. Just stick with the Bible and only the Bible. For those who have such concerns, do you understand that there's a spiritual war for hearts and minds happening in the world today over these two antagonistic principles and methods, and you have to decide which ones you will apply in your heart in how you conduct yourself in dealing with other people. You have to make choices every single day. What method will you use? And thus, I point out how these principles and methods are at war in real-world situations that you're having to make decisions about. Like the whole COVID thing. The whole world was called to make a decision how you would treat your neighbor. How would you treat your own family? How you treat your church member? How will you run your organization? How will you treat your employees? How will you treat visitors? What law will you apply? Truth, love, and freedom? Fear. Protect self. Scared. Coercion. Force others. What law will you apply? This is the great controversy coming to a conclusion. It's coming to a head. The final events worldwide are now moving. I love this quote from the book Education. The Bible is a book Education, page 190. The Bible is its own expositor. Scripture is to be compared with Scripture. The student should learn to view the Word as a whole to see the relation of its parts. One of the problems many people have with Scripture and Christianity is they don't Look at the Bible as a whole. They'll take a little here and a little there, a bit here and a bit there. I just want you to imagine you have a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. And you've got people who go into the jigsaw puzzle and they'll pull out three pieces of that 5,000-piece puzzle. And they'll put those three pieces together and then they will tell you what that puzzle and the message and the picture of that puzzle is from those three pieces. You'll have others that'll do four, eight, twelve, fifteen, thousand. I'm going to tell you, the more pieces of that puzzle you stick in, the more clear the picture becomes. We're going to take the Bible as a whole. All 66 books integrated together because there is one God, there is one sin problem, 
There is one human species infected with one fatal condition. There is one Savior. There is one solution. Why are we so factionalized? Because we've accepted the lie that God's law works like human law. And when you accept the lie that God's law works like human law, think about how many human laws we have in this city, in this county, in this state, in this federal government, and how they're always being amended and changed. And so when you go to the Bible that way, we must be sure we under... And so there's arguments over, was it baptism this way or baptism that way? Is it immersion or sprinkling? There's a right way and there's a wrong way. And you've got to do it the right way or the wrong way because you've got to follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, you get in trouble and you get a demerit and it doesn't count. And it's not only you get the immersion right, did you say the right words? It's baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But you can't, it's the, Father, it's the name of the Father and Jesus. If you don't say Jesus, what's well, not Jesus? You've got to say Yahweh, because if you don't say Yahweh, it doesn't count. <laughs> or you have Yahshua. I mean, on and on it goes. Silliness. Because understand the baptism immersion was only symbol. The thief on the cross did not experience that. Yeah, Jesus said he's going to be in paradise. He didn't go through it. The Old Testament folks didn't go through it. Other than symbolically, uh, those who walked through the Red Sea, we're told, went through it symbolically, through the Red Sea. But most of the Old Testament heroes didn't walk through the Red Sea. It's, an, it's a symbol of the baptism that every saved person has. And that baptism is the baptism of the Holy Spirit in which our minds, hearts, and characters are submerged into the renewing and regenerating um, waters of the Holy Spirit that cleanse us and renew us with Christ's likeness and we become like Christ. That's the reality. But we argue all this stuff because we have rules we have to follow. We don't take the Bible as a whole. He should gain a knowledge of the grand central theme. What is the grand central theme of Scripture? Most people think it's so how we can be saved. Love. That is not it. We, we are part of the plan and included. But the grand sin in God's universe did not start in Eden. And the solution for sin doesn't end with human salvation. It says in Colossians that all things in heaven and in earth are reconciled to Christ at the cross. The heavenly things, the unlooking universe had to be reconciled. Sin had to be eradicated from the universe and stop spreading. So, of course, it includes us, but it's not simply about us. Making it about us, we take our eyes off of Jesus. Right. So, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3, that though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. What do we demolish? Every argument, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. The central issue in the war has always been the knowledge of God, his character, his methods, his law, and how it operates. Continue on with the quote. He should gain knowledge of the grand central theme of God's original purpose for the world, of the rise of the great controversy, of the work of redemption. He should understand the nature of the two principles that are contending for supremacy, truth, love, and freedom. Lies, fear, and selfishness, coercion. These are the two methods that are contending for supremacy and should learn to trace their working through the records of history and prophecy to the great consummation. In other words, we need to study the history of the human race. We need to study the history of Scripture, the history of this battle going on and recorded. 
but we need to trace it to the great consummation. That means the second coming, right? That means we can't stay stuck just in the history. We have to see how it works today. Well, she goes on to even say that further. Here's what she says. You should see how this controversy enters into every phase of human experience, how in every act of life he himself reveals the one or the other of the two antagonistic motives, and how whether he will or not, he is even now deciding upon which side of the controversy he will be found. Why? Because in every act of life, you're deciding what law, what method, what principle are you embracing and choosing to apply in governance of self in how you treat your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. As you have done it unto the least of these, you have... So as we treat our neighbors... We're deciding for or against Christ. We're accepting Christ and treating him with love or we're rejecting him and crucifying him as we abuse our neighbors with coercive power. Notice what happened during COVID, folks. How many Christian folks got duped into embracing the beastly systems of the world in order to save lives, they were willing to coerce consciences. Sounds very similar. If you don't bow, you're going to go in the fiery furnace. This is one of Satan's big traps. Exchange temporal, excuse me, exchange eternal life for temporal life. It's a trap. Over and over through history, you see he brings this pressure. He brought it to Daniel. He brought it to the three worthies. He brought it to, of course, Jesus after he couldn't trick Jesus in the wilderness and he couldn't trick Jesus with all the trap questions that his agents kept asking him. He eventually brought the pressure of both betrayal, abandonment, loneliness, and then coercive force, threat, death. This is method. He always does it. Over and over again, all the lies and trickery to try to trick you into uh, exchanging the truth about God for a lie. If that doesn't work, then what does he try? He'll try to discourage you with friends and family turning on you and betraying you and abandoning you. And then if that doesn't work, what will you do? Pressure comes. And look at the apostles. Who were the primary agents that persecuted Jesus and the apostles? Was it Rome? Was Pilate the agent that initiated the crucifixion of Christ? Or did you actually see from this pagan ruler, he wanted to set him free? So who were the agents behind the rejection of Christ and his crucifixion? The leadership of the church. God's chosen church leadership did this. Who persecuted the apostles? When, 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 the, when the church leadership rejects it, uh, the Holy Spirit works on, on the hearts of regular people, the people in the pews, the people in the pews are inspired. These are the apostles, the disciples, the followers of Christ after the resurrection, and they start sharing the gospel message. And who is the most active people working against Peter and Paul and Silas and Barnabas and so forth? Who is the one seeking and having them arrested and putting them in prison? Who is the one seeking uh, and ha- to have them crucified and persecuted? Why did Paul end up before Caesar? It wasn't the Romans that sought that. It was church leadership. Why? Is it because Jesus came teaching a different Bible? He had a different scripture. Jesus undermined the uh, literal creation week. 
didn't, didn't observe the right Sabbath, didn't keep the right feast days, ate the wrong foods. Didn't obey the laws of the, of the church. He didn't, didn't obey the imposed, made-up rules like Rome makes up that the church made up and taught the principles of the Creator how reality actually works. And they hated Him because it threatened their power. They had power over people because people were afraid to offend them lest they be put out of the synagogue. Read about the boy who was born blind and his healing, and they asked the parents, how is it your son can see? He's an adult. Ask him. And it says in the scripture, they did not want to answer because they were afraid that the, the, the uh, leadership would put him out of the synagogue as they had been doing followers of Christ. Notice the methods being employed. Do you see happening in any church organization that you know that people in leadership put people out of the organization who present what we're presenting? Deplatform them, silence them, won't let them teach a Sabbath school class anymore, won't let them preach, to remove them from the leadership of elder and so forth. Do you see it happening? I get emails and letters from all over the world. It's happening. If you don't know that, we get the emails all over the world. Why? And, and understand what that means. It means there's a selection bias going on. The church is, is going through a filtration process. It's filtering out those who have this message and clinging to those who have an authoritarian, central leadership, top-down, power-over, coercive, over-the-masses-and-the-plebes-and-the-serfs message. It keeps those. Send your money. Send your tithe. Send your offerings. We in power. We in authority. We with our theological degrees. We know better than you. Don't question. Don't ask. Obey. Do you see that's exactly what the state's doing? It's not godly's way, God's way. And, and, and I'll tell you, the Seventh-day Adventist church was not organized to function that way. It was purposely organized where local churches held local authority. Purposely did not want to have a papal system with a central authority, with canon law, rules made up that everybody below has to and understand the dynamics. Why? How does truth on any subject... As the Holy Spirit of truth works on hearts and minds around the world, the Holy Spirit is poured out. Latter rain is coming. How does truth come into the consciousness of human beings on any subject and spread around the world? Is it, it let's, let's move away from theological truth for a minute. Let's, let's look at medical truth. Truth is truth. Remember Louis Pasteur and, and, uh, and, and Lister on germ theory? And there's microbes that can cause disease and we should sterilize instruments and stuff before we do surgery. Uh, when they first came out with their understanding of germ theory, did, did, did germ theory come out this way? One night, all the doctors in the world went to bed, and the next morning they woke up, and all doctors and scientists woke up with understanding of germ theory. <laughs> or, in fact, did a couple of minds understand it, share it, and it was immediately rejoiced over and celebrated. <laughs> no, they were opposed viciously, threatened with imprisonment and even death, and it was terrible. But what happens when the truth begins to advance and those who oppose it try to stop it? What eventually won out? Because it's self-evident that, 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 that if you follow these methods, you had better outcomes. Um, you've heard of uh, Mayo Clinic? One of the reasons they become, it became so famous is they were very early on accepted Lister's um, uh, sterilization proceedings for their surgeries, the Mayo brothers, 
And they had markedly reduced post-surgical infections and better outcomes than all the other hospitals that rejected them. And because of that, they became very famous and very successful. Truth, and eventually, of course, the truth won out. This is how truth unfolds on any subject. So the Adventist church was organized with local authority so that when a person has an epiphany, a new truth, because truth is unfolding, they share it at their local class and others study with them. And if they, if it's truth, they're come to conviction and they share it with their local congregation. And if it's true, they come to conviction and they share it with the churches in their conference. And if it's true, the churches share it with the churches in their union and in their division and the division shares. And eventually as it spreads around the world and the divisions agree, the world church accepts it. This is how tr- truth unfolds. But if you have a central top-down authority, that truth comes from a committee up here, and this is what truth is. If somebody questions it, then what is that? What is that called if you question uh, the, the central, the papal authority? Heresy. And you have to be disciplined, and you have to be disfellowship because you're a heretic you don't agree with what central authority has said is true understand organizationally the adventist church is functioning this way now and it's very sad and that's what the jewish leadership did two thousand years ago satan doesn't care one whit about whether someone has a physical disease or that someone gets cured he doesn't care one whit whether somebody takes a particular treatment or rejects a particular treatment. He doesn't care one whit about that. What the evil one cares about is whether he can get people to choose his methods so that they become like him. If he can get people to pursue saving lives through the application of his methodologies, even if lives are saved temporally, he doesn't care because he gets more recruits to be like him in character. That's what he cares about. And that's what COVID did. I'm telling you, COVID was, the way it was rolled out by the human governments was beastly. It was not godly. And now they're admitting that they made a mistake. Well, because the truth cannot be, uh, the truth always comes out. Right. <laughs> the truth always comes out. If you go back and look at our class, early 2020, we have always been on the right side of this. Always. We were never on the other side. Why? Even before all the science and the data came out, we were still on the right side of it. Why? How could we be? Because of principles and methods. We know that the kingdom of God will never advance through misinformation, through propaganda, through coercion, through silencing, through censoring, through pressure, through force. It doesn't mean we have all the facts right all the time. We're human. We can actually have facts wrong. We can have, have misunderstanding. But the, the principles of the godly people are the way historic science works. Here's our understanding. Here's what we think is happening. Here's our hypothesis. Uh, if you have data that would correct us and show that this isn't the right conclusion, we are eager for that data because we want the best understanding of reality. That is a godly approach. An ungodly approach is we don't really care about reality. We care about power. And right now, this particular thing, we can flame it up. And we can make people afraid. And the more fearful we get, they will give us power to make them feel safe. And they'll do what we say. And we can co- uh, coerce and, and, and control people through their fear. So, so don't bring any truth out that would make them less fearful because then we would lose power. This is what happened. This is how the Dark Ages church worked. Look at the, the, how the Dark Ages church functioned. It functioned not through a message of peace, love, and restoration that took away fear, it functioned through constant fear messaging. 
Everything you could possibly do could result in your eternal torment. And so you had to uh, constantly be reacting to, to all the potential punishments you or your loved ones could get by doing something that would empower the church to help take your fear away. Yes or no? That's how human governments, that's how Satan systems works. God's kingdom is not of this world, and our church should know better. COVID was a test, Satan's test, to see how he could convince even the Christians. Let me say this as clearly as I can. What has happened to the world during the COVID pandemic was not about a virus. Did you all hear me? It was not. It was spiritual warfare. It was about the kingdom of Satan assaulting the kingdom of God. It was about getting people, because the kingdom of God, where does the kingdom of God operate? Where does it exist on earth? In your hearts and minds. And this was a method and a mode to infect hearts and minds with fear and selfishness under the guise of loving your neighbor where you will actually go out and say, if you love your neighbor, you will coerce your neighbor to do what you think is right so we all can be safe. It was so sick. Even the elect, if it were possible, would be deceived, and so many were. There were two issues during the COVID crisis. There were the objective facts about the virus and the objective interventions that one can take to deal with it. That was one issue. And that was the least important issue, but it was a real issue. And it is meritorious to have conversations about that based on the evidence. And I've done that lecture and you can watch it on our website where I went through a bunch of that. But the other issue were the methods we employ in how we treat others as we advance whatever solution we think is best. That's the other issue. The methods we live by and how we treat others. And I will tell you, Far too many medical professionals and church leaders failed to realize that they were tricked into applying destructive methods, even if their motive was to save lives, even if their desire was to help. The methods harmed. And the data is overwhelmingly clear that the methods that were employed by the governments of the world have caused multiple times more harm and deaths than any type of benefit that can be measured. And those deaths and harm are cascading down generations now. And this is what you can always get and will always get when you violate God's design laws. And they violated them. They broke them. You cannot have health in life while violating the laws of health. And the laws of health are always in harmony with how God designed life and health to operate, both physical and moral. So it's very predictable. I can predict what will happen if I let go of this. I don't need a gift of prophecy to know because I understand the law of gravity. It's predictable. When you understand the design laws, you can predict the destruction and damage that will come when you break them. In fact, I saw, saw a headline yesterday on, on, a news, on a news organization website, and the headline was, New Research May Change Your Weekend Plans. And I thought, well, this probably isn't new, but uh, that's an I'll, I'll see what it is. New research shows that 50% of all cancer deaths are caused by alcohol and tobacco. <laughs> wow, didn't see that coming. Of course we saw that coming. How do we see that coming? Because we understand the laws of health. It's predictable you break the laws of health. You get health problems. 
With all this in mind, there's a quote in Thursday's lesson of this week's lesson from the book Upward Look, page 177. That's what it says. Now is our time of peril. Our only safety is in walking in the footsteps of Christ and wearing his yoke. Troublesome times are before us. In many instances, friends will become alienated. Without cause, men will become our enemies. Have we seen this over the last couple of years? The motives of the people of God will be misinterpreted, not only by the world, but by their own brethren. The Lord's servants will be put in hard places. A mountain will be made out of a molehill just to justify men pursuing a selfish, unrighteous course. By misrepresentation, these men will be clothed in dark vestments of dishonesty because circumstances beyond their control made their work perplexing. They will be pointed to as men that cannot be trusted. And this will be done by members of the church. God's servants must arm themselves with the mind of Christ. They must not expect to escape insult and misjudgment. They will be called enthusiasts, enthusiasts and fanatics. Uh, today, they will be called extremists and conspiracy nuts. That's the same thing. But let them not become discouraged. God's hand is on the wheel of his providence, guiding his work to the glory of his name. Well, um, Monday's lesson, <laughs> with what, three or four minutes to go? Let's see if there's any really big high points I can pull out of the lesson, because we won't get through the lesson. Yeah, Monday's lesson points us to Moses. And, uh, and well, ha- well, let's just read this first paragraph. Um, let's see, the first two paragraphs. After the people began worshiping the golden calf, God decided they had gone too far and announced that he would destroy the people and make Moses a great nation. And make Moses a great nation, yeah. But rather than taking up God's offer, Moses pleaded for God to show grace to his people, and God relented. Exodus 32, 1 through 14 raises two important issues. First, God's offer to destroy the rebellious people and bless Moses was a test for him. God wanted Moses to demonstrate just how much compassion he felt for the de- for these desperately disobedient people, and Moses passed the test. Like Jesus, he pleaded for mercy for sinners. This reveals something very interesting. Sometimes God also may allow us to face opposition. He might allow us to be in a crucible so that he, we, and the watching universe can see how much compassion we have for those who are wayward. Well, it's, uh, I, I like they added the second paragraph. They, they've started to give some hints of, of deeper meaning than the traditional way this is, is taken. It gives us opportunity to discuss. So I like that. But let's ask some questions. And lesson says that, uh, that, um, God decided to destroy the people. Did he? Did God decide to destroy the people? And if it wasn't for Moses, who had more patience and more compassion and more love and more understanding than God, pleading and interceding with him, then God would have not been able to restrain his anger and wrath and would have lashed out and killed them. Is that, is that what we're understanding happened here? Is it true that God needs people like Moses and ultimately Jesus to intercede with him, to talk him down, to calm his anger, to propitiate his wrath, to keep him from killing us? I have some patience with certain 
mental health conditions that at times when those conditions flare up, they do lose control of themselves. These people know this about themselves. The condition can cause that. And they will ask them their spouse, hey, if you see me starting to have symptoms of irritability and impulsivity and, and, uh, and un, uh, inappropriate anger, please intercede with me and remind me to take an extra dose of my medicine so I won't escalate to a full relapse and need to be hospitalized again. I have patients that have this insight and they have a spouse. Is, that, is, is this describing uh, God? Does God have some mental health problem and he needs his son to plead with him to help him get a grip on his anger? Good for you. You're right. No. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. God is always for us, always for us, always for us. Interesting that Ellen White uses the word proposed to Moses. He didn't say that that was what was going to happen or what he wanted to do. He proposed it as a possibility. Excellent. So with that in mind, does God have foreknowledge? Yes. So when God proposed that to Moses, did God foreknow how Moses would respond? And did God foreknow that he would actually not destroy the people? So then God didn't actually decide to destroy the people, did he? (laughs) He knew it wasn't going to go that way. So then there was another purpose involved here than actually destroying the people. And what was the other purpose? The Bible tells us that angels long to look into these things, uh, 1 Peter 1.12, and that we are a theater, a spectacle to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4.9. In the book of Job, we see a glimpse of Satan working to try to confuse the loyal angels in heaven, misrepresenting things, twisting things in various ways. Now, just imagine... The, the capital that Satan could spend in heaven after God miraculously delivers these people out of Egypt with the ten plagues and the leading through the, the Red Sea and, and, the, and all that he did for them, that 40 days later they choose they would rather worship a golden calf than him. That's what's happening here. Think of the capital Satan can make. And God, with his foreknowledge, knew this. And so what God is doing, in my view, is he's saying to the angels, my ways work. You remember Moses? The angels remember 40 years ago, Moses murdered an overseer, ran away, hiding because he was afraid, the principles of fear and selfishness operating in his heart. That's Moses 40 years ago. He looks at the angels and said, you remember that, don't you? I want you to watch Moses now. He spent time with me. People who spend time with me are changed. I, their hearts become healed. They live the principles of love. Watch this. And he says, Moses, I'm going to wipe out the people and start with you. And how does Moses respond? Oh, no, I will give my life. Wipe my name. Not, not just put me to sleep and raise me up. Wipe my name out of your eternal book. I'll give my eternal life for these people. Notice. And he looks at the angels and said, see, Satan lies. He doesn't know. This isn't a legal issue. People who trust me, they will be healed, and they will give their lives for others. That's what was going on. Closing comment. As I see it. Moses was saying, I don't want to live in your kingdom if that's the kind of God you really are. I don't see it that way at all because he turned around and said, your reputation, we can't hurt your reputation. I know you're not like that kind of God and people misunderstand you. True. And I agree with you that he wouldn't want to live with a God like that, but I don't think he was actually seeing God that way. I think he knew something else was going on, but I agree with you that he wouldn't. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much 
that you are not like Satan has represented you to be, that you have gone to great risk and great lengths, even allowing yourselves to be misunderstood over and over again to do what was necessary at the time and space and place to do the most therapeutic thing for your people to reach us with your love. We ask that your spirit will allow us to put the puzzle pieces together, the inspired record with the, with the record you revealed in, in the world around us and how reality works, that we can come to a true and accurate understanding of your kingdom and methods, live them out in how we treat others, that we can be powerful lights at this time in human history so that we can see you soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.